Open your Bibles, turn on your mobile devices, power up your iPads to Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to give you fair warning that I brought my big Bible today. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be up here forever, but it's going to be that I'm going to be jumping around a lot today. We're going to be talking about some stuff that is found in all four Gospels, and um, another one miracle, and then another miracle is as found in three of the, of the Gospels, and we're going to talk through what those look like. So open your Bibles. Matthew chapter 14 will be the foundational text that I'll be kind of sharing from, nothing directly, but trying to pull all of the accounts together so that we can understand the miracles of both the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, which I'm sure you've heard, as well as Jesus walking on the water. Before we can jump into those to actually discuss the miracles, we need to understand actually what a miracle really is. Now, we use it somewhat loosely when we say things like uh, to our child that says, hey, I picked up my room, and you go, wow, that's a miracle, right? We would say that's kind of a miracle, or two people that have been married for 50 years, wow, that was a miracle, or even something that you accomplished that was really hard, man, that was just a miracle, So we use the word kind of loosely, but uh, specifically, what does the word actually mean? Miracles are the suspension of natural law. It's actually the suspension of a a natural law. So when we talk about Jesus feeding the 5,000, you're taking a small amount of food and feeding a large group of people. That actually suspends what is natural and goes into super natural. And so even walking on water, you're not supposed to do that. And so don't try it. Don't try it. Some people around the world over the years have said, if you have enough faith, you can walk off the end of a boat and you'll be fine. And one after another, after another, after another have died. And they say, well, they didn't have enough faith. They didn't have enough faith. Well, I'm telling you, I don't have enough faith. So I'm just not going to try it. And so there's elements of natural law that are suspended here. That's what a miracle actually is. And miracles are, uh, they, they reveal that God is real and that God is near. It's not a matter of God being somewhere over there in a room or out there in the universe, but that God truly is near. If you are, in fact, the temple of the Holy Spirit, then Jesus lives with you. He is near. The challenge is oftentimes we don't see him or really experience anything with him. Why? Because we don't really connect with him. If we are saying we're believers, we're supposed to put in some effort to actually know Jesus. Otherwise, we're just playing church. As we go through this narrative of these two miracles, I want us to see that God can remove limitations. We see limitations all around us, and we have limitations all around us. Many times, limitations guide us. Limitations keep us from doing really dumb things. Limitations can be good. We work within our limitations. But we can see here today that God can, in fact, if he chooses to, remove these limitations. So let's begin with the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men. You've read that, right? Have you read? Now, now this is the only miracle. Did you know this is the only miracle that is in all four Gospels except for the resurrection? 
It's the only one that all four of them, you know, were inspired by God through the Holy Spirit to record in their accounts, which to me makes it kind of suspicious. This must be a big deal, a pivotal moment in time for them, maybe even in their faith. Now, I've been diving into these for some time. I've been thinking through these miracles. I've been asking a lot of questions, and I don't even know that I have all the answers. I truly can say I don't know in many cases. You might even have questions after more questions after we're done. So I encourage you to seek out, study, dive in even more. <laughs> so you've heard that this is the feeding of the 5,000 men. But in the account of John, I believe it is, he says that the 5,000 men and their families. Scholars have tried to kind of tally this up, if you would, to say, okay, so if they had so many kids, if they had so many wives and, and such... Well, first of all, why just the men? Well, in this culture, uh, unfortunately, women and children didn't have a whole lot of value of even being tallied. They would focus on the men. This isn't too far-fetched even today. Uh, somebody reminded me that this is how we even manage some of our sports in divisions within schools today. How many boys play at your school? Okay, you're Division Six. Okay, now you have more boys, Division Seven. More boys? That's how they, that's how they rate that. Interesting, isn't it? So they had 5,000 men that is recorded here. But if you add it all together, that's more of a wider gap. You could say it was between 10 and 20,000 people that was actually here for this time, for this miracle. More, uh, actually even more skimmed down. You could even bring it to 15 to 20,000. So on the high end of this, you're looking at upwards of 20,000 people. People, that's women, children, and men that were fed through this miracle, and they're all sitting on the side of the hill, or they're out there listening to Jesus. But let's bridge from last week, where we are at in this story, where, where we're at in this narrative. Last week, we talked about how, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 14, uh, King Herod, and how there was the beheading of John the Baptist. And at the end of that, we read a little bit beyond that, and we saw that John the baptizer's disciples went and got John's body and buried it, and then went and told Jesus. In the different accounts, Matthew's the one that says that John's, John the baptizer's disciples were the one that went to Jesus and talked to them. And so they make that a point. Matthew makes that a point to share that. And then in uh, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk about how uh, the disciples, Jesus' disciples, all true, accurate stuff, came from their journey, their, 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 their ministry journey, their missionary journey, and wanted to share with Jesus what was going on. So Jesus gets the news that his, we would say, cousin, John the baptizer, what had, been, had been killed. And now his students, Jesus' students, are coming back from their missionary trip. And Jesus says, let's just go be by ourselves. Sometimes you just need to take a rest. If you don't take responsibility for the rest you need, you do not get to blame other people for not taking responsibility for the rest you need. If you need a break, if you need a timeout, if you need some alone time, then you need to figure it out and pursue it. And in this situation, Jesus says, hey, let's go and get some, let's get some rest. Let's go and be by ourselves. And so they go across the lake to do just that. Interestingly enough, the crowds recognized everybody, right? 
the, you know, the disciples and Jesus, and they have seen so much already, so many miracles, so many exciting things, and they just want more of it. So they're pursuing Jesus across this lake, uh, probably walking around for where they were was more of like a point of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and so they, they tracked him down. Well, Jesus gets out of the boat and he has compassion for these people. The word compassion goes much deeper than our aww moment. This is a movement within your stomach. This is where this is actually a word that it has to do with your bowels. Jesus was moved in his bowels. Now, in the language then, that wasn't weird. We say bowel movement today, and we're going, I can't believe you said that. Right? So they said, but they would say he was really, he was moved to the point of his bowels. He was moved in his gut. He had great compassion for these people. So he began to teach. He went to go get away and have some time. And maybe across the lake was, you know, a little bit of downtime, no doubt. But he sees these people and he, and he just looks at them and, and, he, and he knows these people look just like sheep without a shepherd, which means that they just look scattered. They look lost. They don't have any sort of gathering together. They're just kind of out there. And so he begins to heal and he begins to teach. Well, while he's over there, the day continues on. They're listening to what he has to say. And it's getting later. So the disciples start gathering some thoughts, thinking, you got to feed these people. The disciples were really good at trying to take control of things, right? I think the chosen does uh, a decent enough job to be able to see like what this could look like. Also, making sure that anything you watch, always put it next to God's word. And if there's any discrepancies, God's word wins out, okay? But it gives you a picture of what it could have been, potentially, of the disciples coming to Jesus to talk about, hey, all these people. So they're looking at upwards of 20,000 people. They're saying, people are hungry. People are hungry and they want to go, they need to go eat. Like, let's, let's send them off. Well, Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, looks over at Philip and says, Philip, what do you think we should do? Now, this is the moment where mom or dad looks at their kid or a teacher looks at the student and already knows what they're going to do, already knows how it's all going to play out and says, what do you think? We know this because John records that Jesus says, what do you think? Even though the words are, even though Jesus knew exactly what he was about to do. And so he's having this moment, bringing Philip into this, and Philip says, can't be done. Like, there's no way that we can feed him. Jesus, they need to eat. Feed them. What do you think we should do, Philip? Well, I mean, we could work for eight months, and still, I mean, they're going to get scraps. Like, it's not even going to, but that's not even going to go throughout all these people. Jesus says, well, what do we have? Like, just give me what you have. And they go into the crowd and they look around. Somehow they come upon this little boy that has five loaves of bread and two fish. Now the loaves that we know of today are like big loaves, right? Like big things and it's all sliced up, best thing ever, 
right? Sliced bread. And so we get these loaves, and sometimes they're more rounder, but they're bigger. These were probably more like, just kind of like, almost like a giant ball of dough in your hand you would hold. That's, so it's smaller even than what we would know of today. And so, okay, so bring me what you have. And Jesus does what Jesus would do as a Jewish man. He looks up to heaven and prays, which was very customary. Today, we, we, we simply like, we're, we're all about like, bow your head, close your eyes, fold your hands. And if you can, get down on your knees, right, do this. And Jesus, he looked up to heaven and he thanked the Lord. Thank you for what we have. Thank you for where we are. Thank you for what we have to work with. And he asked the disciples to begin to pass out the bread and the fish. And they start passing out the bread and the fish. And wouldn't you know it, it is recorded that they, that they kept on eating, according to Matthew, all that they wanted. Now, it's so interesting to me that they're standing around and they're talking and they're saying, well, what are we supposed to do? Philip, what do you, what do you think we should do? That can't be done. You would think these guys had never seen a miracle before or Jesus do something completely radical that, that, that's like, whoa, it's like mind-blowing. Or have they? They saw him teach up to this point. Maybe not all the disciples, but many of them saw him teach with great authority, which was different than the Pharisees. But then he goes into these miracles. He turns water into wine. He healed a government official's son, healed Peter's mother-in-law and many others. This is all coming from all the, all the gospels together. He healed a man of leprosy, healed a paralyzed man. He healed a man by the pool of Bethesda. He healed a man on the Sabbath. He raised a widow's son from the dead, calmed a storm, commanded demons, healed a woman from, uh, who was bleeding for 12 years, and all she did was touch the garment that he was wearing. He healed the blind and the mute. And the disciples themselves have just returned from their missionary trip where they were given the authority to cast out demons and heal the sick. And Jesus looks at Philip and says, what should we do? And he says, can't be done. You don't need any more signs. What are you doing? The proper answer, the correct answer should have been whatever you tell us to do. The answer should have been, well, we've seen you do other things. I, I, don't, we don't, I have no idea what this looks like, but I know you know. Turning it all the way back to Jesus every time. And yet they're trying to be logical about it. Philip, what do we do? Can't be done. After all that you have seen and all that you got to go do and see, and all we're trying to do is feed people. And you say it can't be done. So they begin to spread everything out, and they see that it keeps going, keeps going, and keeps going. And Jesus, I don't know what level of sarcasm Jesus ever had, but I would imagine as a teacher, there's, there's, there's sarcasm is a wrong word for sure, but I could see him, all right, guys, well, everybody got all that they wanted, Scripture says, not just needed. They ate. You pass that down here? Yeah, I got more room right here on this side of the belly. So bring me some more. And they ate and they enjoyed. They ate all that they wanted. And then Jesus says, hey, you know what? 
we don't want to waste any of it. Why don't you go ahead and see if anything's left? <laughs> you know, go, go gather up any leftovers, and that way there's no waste. And so it's that moment as a teacher going, wait till they see this. And they go with their 12 baskets, and they fill up those 12 baskets with leftovers. And they bring it back. Did you guys pick up anything? Well, um, we, yeah. We actually have 12 full baskets of leftovers. Oh, you do, do you? Hmm. I don't know if Jesus ever made that noise. But maybe he did often. Hmm. Okay. You know, like I... So, it worked, so you're saying it worked out. You're saying, okay, Philip, right? Oh, I wish it was recorded if he had another conversation with Philip right afterwards. Philip, you see that? Uh, it can be done, right? It can be done. And so after everybody has been fed and all the leftovers, the abundance of giving that Jesus poured out to these people, some 20,000, at most probably 20,000 people that were fed. And Jesus looks over at the disciples and starts talking to them. And he says, okay, so guys, I want you to go and get in the boat and go to the other side. Now, when, when you hear that, these aren't suggestions. These aren't suggestions that Jesus says, hey, whenever you feel like it, as a teacher commands the student, it's, it's that. It's a command. Hey, get in a boat, right? This, you know, this isn't a question. Go get in a boat. And sends them out onto the lake. And the very next miracle occurs. Interesting. Is this the same lake where that huge storm is coming? Jesus sent them, is Jesus God say yes? Yes. So you mean to tell me that Jesus knew that there was a storm coming and he sent them anyway? So you mean to tell me that there are times that Jesus sends us into a storm of life, a difficulty, a hardship like no other, and he knew it was coming? Why would a good God do something like that? Because he is a good God. Because he's looking to challenge you, to shape you, to guide you, challenging your faith even. And sometimes it may not even be necessarily directly for you. It could be somebody in your life and you're a part of it. And you get to be a part of that. Sometimes it's directed at you and sometimes it's not. But there are times that you are sent into the storm that is yet to come knowing and God's fully aware that he knows exactly what he's doing, sending you out there. And just coming off the feeding of this 5,000 men and their families, and they go out into the lake, the sea, they refer to it as a sea, the sea of Galilee. Now the, the portion that they were traveling from point to point would have been approximately six miles. Though the, the, the previous miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was in all four Gospels, Luke leaves this miracle out for whatever reason. I told him not to put it in, huh? So Matthew, Mark, and John record this very next miracle of Jesus walking on the water. So he says, guys, go off into the, the other side, and I'm, I'm just going to stay here for a moment. 
And Jesus goes up by himself and has a moment, has a prayer. He's always right, getting away. Didn't get to do it before. And now I got a full belly, probably ate too, right? And now I'm going to go over here and I'm going to sit. So they go out into the, the, the Sea of Galilee. And the, the storm comes upon them like shockingly fast. And the reason why that happens is very typical in the Sea of Galilee because it's below sea level. And so the, this, the, 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 the hot air and the cold air just rushing in and bam, right into each other. And storms would just kick up out of what would seem like nowhere. And they're rowing and they're rowing and they're rowing. And Mark talks about how they're about, they're about halfway in the middle of where they were going. They traveled approximately three miles so far rowing. Do you know how long they were probably out there? About eight to nine hours against the wane. The, 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 the wane. That would be wind and rain together. Uh, the rain and the wind and the, and the waves, right? Everything that is out there and just beating against the boat. Probably taking them off course, no doubt. And they're just tired. It is recorded that Jesus sees that they are struggling. Maybe, they, maybe in his humanity, he could see from where he was sitting. Maybe in his divinity, he just already knew it. Both could be true, because he's Jesus. And he's aware that they're struggling. So he goes out by them on the water. This is where Jesus, the miracle of Jesus walking on the water occurs. And these guys are tired. I mean, think about it. Eight or nine hours of rowing a boat just by itself on, on like a smooth, glassy uh, surface of, of a sea or water would be one thing. But to do it in such a way to keep you in one direction or another direction and not actually like to capsize or whatever, that's got to be a lot of work. So they see this figure into the distance. And it's so interesting. They immediately go to, ah, oh, it's a ghost. They immediately think like, oh my gosh, they're coming to get us. And they get a little freaked out, which I would imagine you and I would as well. If in fact, his silhouette is visible from the lightning behind, if that's how they saw him, that would kind of freak you out. And so they scream, oh, it's a ghost. And Jesus in his pleasantries says, cheer up. That's the indication of the verbiage here in, in the original language is cheer up. Are you kidding me? It's okay. It's me. I'm with you. Now, at this point, Jesus is trying to remind them and, and, and help them understand, hey, it's okay, I'm here. The rain hasn't stopped. The wind hasn't stopped. And the waves are still dangerously high. It's interesting as a parent how we'll do this. There's nothing we can do in our humanity to change some circumstances. But us just being present is a big deal. A couple days ago, we had a storm blow through Mogador, and I'm sure in the surrounding areas, you know, like in Uniontown and different areas, you saw it rowing, your power went out, yeah. And so some people lost power. And so the thunder is what scares my Brooklyn. The lightning really doesn't bother her too much because we can kind of block that out. And of course, the rain, you know, what does she care? That's soothing. But it's the thunder, right? It's the thunder, the crashing of the thunder. And if she goes to sleep, she's fine. She'll sleep through it. But she wasn't quite asleep yet. And she heard it, and she came out, and she says, I don't like that. Get it? <laughs> that can be scary. 
So I said to her, I said, What's, you, you know how we do it. We're not trying to get up. I'm not trying to do, like, go back in there. Just go back to sleep. It's going to be okay. No problem. But I'm scared. Okay, I'll tell you what. She's got bunk beds, and I am not trying to get up on the top bunk. So Grace was somewhere else that evening, and I said, well, I'll lay down here on Grace's bed, and then you stay on your bed. And then I'll just stay here with you. How about that? He says, okay. The, the water's still shooting off my downspout like it's a fire hose. The lightning is still really intense, and the thunder did not go anywhere. But because my presence said, cheer up. She was able to calm herself and regulate her thoughts enough to be able to calm down. Then just a few minutes later, I got up and I said, hey, I just need to check a few things because that's what I do. That's what your dad does. I got to make sure everything's okay with the house. Sure, everything's just fine, but I'm going to go look. She's like, okay. I said, but don't worry. I'll come back and I'll check on you. And I did. And I checked on her, building that, that confidence that, okay, so he's doing what he said he's going to do. And the storm hasn't stopped. So Jesus is out there and he says, hey, it's okay, right? Be of good cheer almost. I'm here. And Peter, God love Peter. Oh my word, Peter. Peter's that guy that probably got teased all the time. You know, I mean, there was that he denied Jesus three times. There was those moments where he was just, you know, very emotional, no doubt. But he's the only one that walked on water. So he says, hey, Lord, if that's really you, call me out to you. Bid me to come to you, one translation would say. Really? That's my version. Really? Peter, you, you sure? Okay, come on out. Storm hasn't gone anywhere. The rain's still there. The waves are still there. The wind is still there. Well, come on out. Peter gets out of the boat, miracle number two, and begins to walk on the water. And he's doing it. He's doing something he's not supposed to do. He shouldn't be able to do this by natural law. Gravity should have taken him down. The water displacement should have moved, and he would go right inside, and he'd be covered. But when you, two plus two is always four, until you multiply that by Jesus. And now it's whatever he says it is. And so Peter begins to see the, the rain and the wind and the waves, maybe even having some thoughts. Maybe, just maybe, it popped in his head. I shouldn't be allowed to do this. And he stopped doing that and went down. Jesus, as he is close, grabbed him and pulled him up and looks at him and says, oh, you of little I would have been like, but look at how far I came. Like, look at all I did. I actually did that. No, you didn't. I did that. You did nothing. You sang. That's what you did. You didn't do any of the walking stuff. And so Jesus then gets into the boat. And as soon as he gets into the boat, we're told that the storm stopped. Take courage, I am here, according to Mark. Then he climbed into the boat and the wind stopped. They were totally amazed, for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. 
after all they saw, after all they did, after all they experienced, there was still this limitation. There was still this lack of faith. There was still this block. We're going to see in Matthew 15 in a couple weeks how Jesus got to a point where he said, you don't want me. You just, what I can, you just want what I can do for you. Where are you on that? Do we really long for the Savior? Or are we just excited that he makes me feel good? Do we really long for the Son of Man and to know him intimately as a friend, as a rescuer? Or are we just doing church because everybody else is? You don't need another sign. I don't need another sign. We just need to make a decision. We just need to get to a point where we make a decision that we're either going to be all in or all out. Oftentimes people don't jump all in and even start serving the Lord in any capacity because they say things like, well, I have so far to go. Well, I really don't know enough. Well, I'm really not that good. How dare you ridicule one of God's children? You are his property. How dare you come down on something that he has bought and purchased with the son of, and the blood of his son? You see, it's not about how great you are. It's about how great God is. You can do anything he calls you to do. There's some areas within the life of the church that it takes a little extra skill. You might be able to learn that. There are others that don't take as much skill. You're not going to see me jump up here in Andrew's spot and try to play the electric guitar. That will be a disaster. Now I can hold it. And I've seen enough MTV in the 80s. I know how to hit stuff with the guitar. <laughs> but I don't have any, right? I know my gifts. I know my skill sets. And I, and I focus in that lane. And then everybody else that has those gifts and those skills, they jump into that because they know what they can do because God has called them to do that. It's not about how great you think you are. It's about how great God truly is. You might have missed this little detail in the walking on the water. Jesus walks on water. That was a miracle in his humanity. Peter walking on the water. That's a miracle because he's straight up human. But at the end of Mark, in the, at the end of John, sorry, the end of John's gospel, he records this. So they called out to Jesus and they said, don't be afraid. Now keep in mind, Matthew's the only one that talks about Peter walking on the water. I don't know if the others just, eh, Peter's got enough stories in here. We don't need to put him in there. Uh, frankly, God is the one that orchestrated all this. And this is what you're going to put in your gospel. With, with, working within their humanity, of course. Don't be afraid, I'm here, he says in John, John chapter 6. Then they were eager to let him in the boat. You can imagine, right? Oh, it really is you. Get in the boat. Get in the boat. And once he got in the boat, immediately they arrived at their destination. Miracle number three. They were in the middle of the ocean, the sea. They were in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. 
So either somehow Jesus got in, calmed, which wouldn't be too far-fetched to believe that Jesus not only calmed the sea, but could have easily transported them there. So either Jesus transported them there, or they were already there and they didn't realize it. But they said as soon as he got in, they were immediately there. Something happened when Jesus got in that boat. Jesus is showing that he truly is God. Look at what he's doing. Look at these miracles. Look at how he's working in the hearts of people. Now, whether you're dealing with some loss or you don't have it, like hunger, like the feeding of the 5,000, or you're dealing with some sort of trial where you're going through a storm, I just want you to know that Trials will not last forever. You're either going to, and everybody's going to experience them. You're either going into a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you're dead center in the middle of a trial. You're always dealing with something. There's some level of trial that you're dealing with. Could be somebody in your family, somebody in your life that's going through it as well. Trials will not last forever. Either you will come out of it, have learned, and still be here. Or you'll come out of it and be made new in the presence of Jesus. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The healing, one way or another, is going to happen. We oftentimes want to pray that it'll happen as a miracle where natural law is suspended and the sickness is removed that. I pray that often. Because if the person sees Jesus, that's natural. Natural law, right? You're going to pass on. And so please hear me when I say the trial's not going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. So what do you do with this? How do I walk into it? How do I deal with it? How do I even come out of it? Look for Jesus in the midst of it. He won't be far. Because if I truly am the temple of God, mini temple, mobile temple, then the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, which means Jesus is closer to me than I thought. So if he truly lives inside of me, if he's literally, let's just say, physically speaking, he's right next to me, like right, kind of like right here, How do I miss him? Because you're so focused on the storm, you're so focused on the trials, you miss the fact that Jesus is doing a work. And we want to look at all the stuff that's happening. We want to see all the things around us that tear us down and make us feel weak and worried. And really, we're just supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus. The storm might still be going on while you're staring at him. The storm might still be crashing around you. Just look for him. It won't be far. And then one thing that's kind of hard for us in our pridefulness at times is ask for what you need. Look for Jesus, believer. Look for him. He's right there. And then ask for what you need. We want to help people more than we ever want to be helped, right? 
because it feels better. If I can help you, I feel great. If you help me, I feel weird. Well, get over it because the church is supposed to be a support to one another, bearing one another's burdens. Sometime I might need you to lift me up. And if I don't ask for it, how are you ever going to know? You have to ask. Some people will get mad even at me personally. Why didn't you come see me? Why didn't you talk to me? Why didn't you do this? Who are you? Where were you? Just help me fall, help me catch up. Because if you're mad at me, I at least want to know like why you're mad at me. If we don't know, we don't know. And I love how our Obi John, John Benedetto, gives me regular updates on his wife. Uh, this morning, her O2 count uh, dropped again. And so they had to transfer her back into the ICU, been into, the, into um, rehab, ICU, rehab, ICU a couple of times. She has something similar to ALS. And so she's dealing with what is natural, the decline of that. And so we're asking, he's asking regularly, hey, will you pray for us? Hey, will you keep us up there? He refers to uh, his church as the ark, his ark. That when there's a storm going on, he can rest within the church. The people, not the building, the people. But we can walk with him in this. We can pray for them in this because we know about it. They ask for what they need. So if I'm going to look for Jesus, find Jesus. He's so close to you. And then ask him for what I need. Here comes the, ooh, that, this is even heavier. You got to trust the outcome. You have to trust the outcome. But I want it this way. I know. God might say, I don't. So either you're God and he's not, or he's God and I'm not. One of them's true. So I'm choosing to believe that he's God and I'm not. So if I ask for him to do a work in any situation, as small or as grand as it is, I'm just going to trust his outcome. I might grieve. Then I go back. Look for Jesus. Ask him for what I need. And I do it again. And I trust him with the outcome. You can rest assured that your church family can be right alongside you as well. So our big idea is rather simple. God can remove limitations. This is where we kind of put a to be continued dot, dot, dot placard over this right now. This is going to take us into the next five weeks because you and I need to put in the work. We need to be willing to put in the work. As Second Peter said to us, Jackster was up here reading it for us. Let me read it one more time. This is going to lead us into the next couple of weeks. Growing in your faith. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. 
We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Verse 4. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. You are promised in Christ. That's what that is, believer. Verse 5. In view of all this, make every effort to respond. This make every effort is not, well, if you get around to it, if, you know, whenever you're, whenever you, you know, it comes into your mind, this understanding, the original language in Greek here means speed, haste, make every effort, go do it, go get it, go after it, right here, right now, make the decision, you're either in or you're out, make every effort to respond to God's promises. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, draws you to himself, and then you have to make a decision. Are you going to follow this Jesus, believe in him, or are you not? Make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. We are to live at such a high moral standard that people just don't get us. Because everybody else is doing it, why aren't you? Live at such a high level of moral excellence, people might even leave you. But look for Jesus. Ask for what you need. And trust the outcome. And moral excellence with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. Oh, and self-control with patient endurance. And patient endurance with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection love for, um, with love for everyone. You look at that list and you go, What? That sounds like a lot of work. We need to put in the effort. If you're going to grow as a follower of Jesus, you need to put in some effort. And it's, it's, it's different than just helping and serving. Those are valuable things. But you need to know how to dive into God's word. Over the next five weeks, we're going to take a break from Matthew and Friends. And myself and Pastor Craig on different weeks are going to uh, bring you Spiritual Cooking 101. We're going to take a classroom feel, a classroom setup, if you will, and we're just going to bring it right here. And we're going to teach you how to study the Bible. We're going to walk this through uh, with you about application, interpretation, or observation, sorry, observation, interpretation, application. We're going to look at what those are, and we're going to take five weeks of Spiritual Cooking 101 to do it. You have to put in the effort if you're going to grow as a believer. You don't eat but once a week. As an individual, as a human, spiritually, you can't do it either. You have to eat daily to fill yourself and grow yourself, and the Spirit will do the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we 
go throughout our day today. We ask you for your guidance, your wisdom. Lord, I pray this week that we would have conversations with you about these limitations. If you truly remove limitations, would you show us what these limitations are? And if we're not sure how to deal with them, would you show us how to deal with those limitations? Because there are some that want to dive right in, just get in there, but they're allowing limitations to hold them back. Please show us, reveal to us, guide us into these next steps. God, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for recording this for us, that we could see this miracle of feeding upwards of 20,000 people, this miracle of you walking on the water, Peter walking on the water, you like skipping them to their destination. Wow, you truly are God and we are not. We give you that, we give you honor, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, stand, receive the blessing of the Lord as we head out of here today. Now devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Now say it with me, go and be the church.